0: Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll learn about a remote navigation system that provides
1: doctors with access to the heart without cutting open the patient's chest. But this technology, the catheter is soft. It went where we intended to do, and we got rid of the arrhythmia, and it was safe. And she went home and enjoying life now. Then
0: we'll hear the good news and the not-so-good news about smoking rates.
1: Please remember that back in
2: 1950, almost 50% of men smoked before the first Surgeon General's report. So it's a dramatic drop. And we'll explore gun violence
3: from a public health point of view. Firearm injuries and deaths significantly contribute to premature deaths, illness, and disability. Um, But again, these are preventable.
0: All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only Academic Medical Center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, We'll hear about smoking rates for traditional tobacco cigarettes as well as electronic cigarettes. Then we'll look at gun violence as a public health issue. But first, how patients with certain types of heart disease are being helped by a remote navigation system called stereotaxis. Today, we'll hear about a procedure for patients with certain types of heart disease that gives doctors access to the heart without cutting open the patient's chest. It's a remote navigation system called stereotaxis. Here to tell us all about it is Dr. Luna Bada, director of the Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology Lab and the Arrhythmia Service at Upstate University Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Bada.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Um, let's start by just saying what a cardiac electrophysiology lab
1: does: uh, People have different kind of heart disease. As you know, your heart is a muscle pump, but it's operated by electricity, and your heart can look normal in every angle, still have electrical problem. So those electrical ca- problems can lead to arrhythmia, that means abnormal in your rhythm, and that can er, ranges from having symptoms uh, for like palpitation all the way to sudden death. Okay. So we treat those patients in like cardiac electrophysiology lab.
0: And is that something with patients, if they have an arrhythmia, would they necessarily know it? Would they feel it?
1: Sometimes they, they do have some warning, like they feel palpitation, the awareness of a heartbeat. You know, you're not supposed to hear your heart thumping until you, know, you go to bed at night lying on the left side. Sometimes you hear, that's okay, my patient always asks me. Okay. But you're not supposed to be aware. Your heart should be just working without you knowing it. But when you start to feel your heartbeat, that's the time to seek help. There could be something wrong with the electricity of your heart.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. All right. And then um,
0: there's a variety of treatments that are available at the electrophysiology lab, a bunch of different things that yes, are offered? Yes, yes.
1: There are two kinds of uh, uh, electrical problem in the heart. Is one is get gets your heart so slow that your heart won't pump in enough blood and you feel all the way from dizzy to peace, people sometimes pass out from it. For those patients, we implant a device called pacemaker. But for other people, like you know, people with a palpitation that have a normal circuit in the heart, then we need to go in and figure out you know, what was that normal circuit causing the problem and take care of it. And that procedure is we call ablation. So in the EP lab, we do implant and ablation to treat different kind of arrhythmia.
0: Okay, neat. Well, now, um, where does stereotaxis fit into all of this?
1: Yes, I'm very excited to talk about it because we acquired this remote uh, navigational, magnetic navigational system in uh, 2010, uh, 2011, I think, and I have done about 220 oh. procedure with it. The main characteristic of this pre- uh, the, this device or this technology is the precision, safety, reduce, reduction of a, uh, f- uh, rate, uh, x-ray exposure time, and overall um, accuracy. So the system Basically uh, operates like I I can as a doctor sit in the uh, control room and operate the catheter with a magnetic device, and it's be, the difference between conventional system and stereotaxis ablation is that in stereotaxis you control the tip of the catheter, versus the conventional system you you use the shaft to move the catheter, so it's makes Does it,
0: it let you move it in different ways. Yes,
1: so and you can get to the heart. The, the place of the heart that is hard manually to get into it. Oh, you okay. can just get just about anywhere with a very uh, a good safety margin without, you know, using a lot of force with your hand. So mes- machine does a much better job.
0: This sounds like the robotic um, that we've had surgeons come talk about, the use of robotics. Is that Yes, that's a,
1: that's a similar technology. They operate, the, the surgeon probably operate the knife with the mm-hmm. remote navigation system. We uh, operate the catheter. Okay, and we have had very good success rate. We have zero complication related to uh, this technology, and we have done a lot of elderly patients. You know, where conventionally their risk of, you know, perforation is higher. With this technology, it's zero percent.
0: Wow, wow, that's interesting. Now, does it is it replace the traditional like catheterization,
1: um, so that you would go in
0: for? just to um, diagnose problems or to
1: treat problems? That's a very good question. We haven't been able to completely replace the technology because, uh, replace the conventional ablation catheter because um, there, there are several catheter you need in the heart to diagnose this. So this basically is the main catheter that we use the remote uh, navigation uh, to operate because uh, that's the time, majority of the time spent is by mapping and ablation. But we, we still have other that we have to manually put it in. And I think in the future, with the technology going further and further, we will be able to do completely without manual involvement. Neat.
0: All right, well, now, what types of patients are candidates for stereotaxis?
1: Um, basically, uh, it, all the people, actually, they qualify, but the cost is a problem. That's, that's why this technology is not universally adopted. So, if you cause conscious we try to use on a patient that you know really conventionally has failed the technology. But I have been using in a lot of patient that even you know they could have been done with the conventional method just because of the safety, reduction in radiation, and, and you know precision of the procedure itself.
0: Is do insurance companies cover the stereotaxis? So
1: so far they haven't told me not yet. Oh, good. Okay. So, all right. Um. So
0: stereotaxis costs more than the conventional, but for some patients, it's more appropriate if they're a higher risk patient. Yes. Yes.
1: The basically the cost is, is just a It needs a certain kind of room. Uh, it has a big, huge magnet. You have to be able to accommodate, and and those things cost more in the long run. I think it's it's a good technology to have because of the time you save using this technology, the re- radiation reduction. And also, um, the complication rate is much okay. less.
0: So is there anyone that's not a good candidate? I heard you men- use the word magnet. So are there some patients that would not be candidates yeah. because of? R-
1: yes. If they have a very big you know, magnetic uh, uh, instrument or implant, something okay. implanted in their body, we screen them all the time to make sure that the majority of the p- patient with a conventional pacemaker, uh, neurostimulator, they are fine. Good okay,
0: well, um, we're you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air, and we're talking with Dr. Luna Bada about stereotaxis, um, which is a uh, sort of an alternative to cardiac ablation. Yes, yes. Um, so tell me uh, in a little more depth about what cardiac ablation is for. Now this would be patients that have an arrhythmia or yes. an irregular heartbeat right. that um, is dangerous and yes. needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, what does ablation do for that?
1: Now, uh, ablation basically treats the fast kind of abnormal rhythm. Okay. So um, when, when you doctor has suspicion that there's an abnormal circuit in your heart, electricity, we have to go in and figure out where the abnormal circuit is and disable it with either heat energy or uh, we we use cryo means like freezing the area so it won't act up anymore. And a lot of time we can cure this, so patient never have to come back see us again. Wow,
0: how do you determine between the use of heat or freezing?
1: That's a very good question. The heat is the energy we have been using for many years, and the the freezing energy was there, but then not universally adopted until recently. And and like freeze the difference between heat and uh, freeze is that. If by heating, you can do permanent irreversible damage. So when you get to an uh, area that you think you're ablating the abnormal circuit, but there is some normal circuit sneaking behind it, you can destroy it, and you can't go back. And once it's done, the patient will end up requiring pacemaker because you destroy the normal uh, electricity of the heart. But with freezing, you can kind of test it. And if, if the area is good, then you can further freeze it it's a reversible technology, so you notice you're too close to the normal system. You can wow. avoid... Pace. So a lot of freezing that uh, you're using uh, in children because you don't want them to end up with a pacemaker the rest of their life. But in adult, it's not universally adopted, but for certain procedure, has proven, it's benefit.
0: Wow. Would you ever use both in the same patient? Uh, Sometimes
1: not at the same setting, maybe. Oh, uh, Actually, it can be done in the same setting, too. When you go in and you figure out this is not going to be a, uh, you know, a good idea because it looks like too close. But the patient is so symptomatic, uh, so we can change it to uh, the the cryo ablation technique. Now, the other thing with the te- I want to give if it, if my, may talk about mm-hmm. a patient. Sure. Recently, I, I I was very happy with the technology, but this one was specially in my memory because it was so special. When patients get to 90 years and above, and we try to not to do an invasive procedure because the risk itself is high. Yeah. Okay. Because so this patient has been in and out of the hospital with multiple uh, episodes of palpitation. It became literally incessant. And uh, initially we tried to treat with medications, but, but it just it didn't take care of it. But she was getting increasingly uh, very weak and, and, and it's affecting her overall lifestyle. And so she came back and said, you know what, even if it's a risk, I would like to go for it and see what happened. So we went in, and she has extremely, as we can see, a lot of elderly, one of the reasons the risk is their artery and veins are extremely torturous. Oh. So when you introduce the catheter, we do it from upper leg, and we couldn't manipulate the catheter. And if you use too much force, their heart is usually thin, and you can perforate it. But this technology, the catheter is soft. It went where we intended to do. And we got rid of the arrhythmia and it was safe, and she went home and enjoying her life now. Wow, wow. So we were very happy. We have several cases like that, 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 you know, because of the safety, and we are more willing to use this technology in the elderly patient, too.
0: So tell me, um, what is this like from the patient's point of view? Do they come in? Is it a one day procedure? It's an outpatient
1: procedure. If they happen to be in the hospital, we can do them, but majority of them, they come from home. And and we tell them to pre- be prepared to spend like a uh, you know a whole day with us because we prepare them and then we do the procedure and then we watch them for about four or five hours and we send them home. So
0: is it like uh, do they have um, do they have to stop eating at midnight? Is it like a sur- Do you have to prepare for surgery? Yes. Or?
1: Yeah. They, basically, they stop eating and, uh, after midnight and uh, usually most of the procedure done mid by midday and they can go back and eat right away and that they can drink and communicate with their family because there's no knife involved at all. It's all catheter-based, needle, so as soon as uh, um, they get rid of, uh, they come off of the anesthesia, it's not a, it's not done in general anesthesia, it's local and, and some sedation medication. Okay. So there's not a lot of recovery uh, time needed and they just walk home. And a lot of time we do it, you know, on Thursday and Friday. They can go back to work on Monday. On Monday,
0: so um, you go in typically through the uh, uh, vein in the leg.
1: Yes, we use um, majority of the time vein, and sometimes artery on the in the leg. Uh, we call it femoral. It's it's a groin area that that's, and then they may be a little sore for a day or two, but there's no scar or anything because it's completely catheter based and, and outpatient based technology. Okay
0: well how quickly would they if they're feeling these arrhythmias before they come for the procedure how quickly would those go away
1: uh, actually it just goes away right away where if you if you're successful ablating in the setting you know you got it or not okay and they'll they'll so they'll wake up yeah, they wake up and then they go home and whatever they used to have it is not happening again so it's very immediate neat
0: Well, that's kind of cool, because you know if it's been a success right away. Right, right,
1: right. right. So it's very rewarding. Good.
0: Well, um, and you say you've done 220 or so procedures since 2011, Mm -hmm. um, and that's just with stereotaxis. That's not all ablations, but that's stereotaxis. stereotaxis. Okay. All right, well, is um, stereotaxis, is this something that's widely
1: available in central New York? Not really. We are the first place to acquire it, and then the closest place uh, that I know of has this technology is the, uh, Rochester. Okay,
0: so um, in, in Syracuse, upstate is the place to come for stereotaxis. Yes, yes. And um, how would a patient find out more about, would they, I guess, go through their regular uh, family doctor or internal medicine doctor
4: to get a I, referral?
1: I just wanted to yeah, let everybody know this is technology is available and we welcome patients uh, and their doctors to uh, come and see us.
0: Very good. Well, thank you. Um, this has been uh, Amber Smith with HealthLink on Air speaking with Dr. Luna Bada from Upstate Medical University's Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology Lab. Thank you, Dr. Bada. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Stay tuned. Next, We'll hear about smoking trends on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith. So there's good news and bad news about cigarettes. The number of adults who smoke cigarettes has dropped to a new low at a time when more and more people are vaping electronic cigarettes. Here to talk about these trends and their impact on cancer rates is Dr. Leslie Coleman, professor of surgery and director of outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Coleman. Thank you. Um, now I wanted to start out by asking. Um, I've been surprised to hear that smoking. Is related to cancers other than lung cancer. It makes sense to me that if you're inhaling a chemical into your lungs, that it might damage the lungs, but how does it lead to bladder cancer or some other type of cancer?
2: Smoking has an effect on all the organ systems in the body. The smoke that's inhaled through the lungs is delivered to the bloodstream. The lung is a very well-supplied organ with blood vessels, and these chemicals are carried to your brain, including the nicotine, which is what feels good to smokers. So many diseases that are not cancer, including our leading killer, heart and vascular and stroke disease, as well as end-stage lung disease, COPD and emphysema, and many other non-cancerous diseases, but among cancer, Besides lung cancer, smoking causes cancer of the mouth, throat, head, and neck, esophagus, stomach, kidney, bladder, okay. colon and rectum, and even a slight increase in breast cancer among
0: smokers. Wow. Okay. All right. Now, and, um, at the same time, lung, lung cancer rates are on the decline, though, right? Well, because smoking has declined
2: so much, lung cancer rates are slowly catching up. Lung cancer incidence has been falling in men for a number of years, in women for much fewer years. But now, most of the people who get lung cancer are either never smokers or, more commonly, Mm -hmm. former smokers who've done what they were supposed to and are still at risk
0: years later. Okay. Well, I uh, saw that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is reporting that 15 of every 100 U.S. adults smoked cigarettes in 2015, and that compares with 21 of every 100 10 years earlier in 2005. That's got to be encouraging to you. It's very encouraging, and please remember that back in
2: 1950, almost 50 percent of men smoked before the first Surgeon General's report, so it's a dramatic drop. Although it's still the leading cause of preventable death. A million people die in New York State alone
0: every year from smoking-related disease. Well, now who is still smoking? Are there segments of the population that just haven't gotten the message yet? The smokers now are people in poverty, people with less
2: education, people with disabilities, and lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. We have pretty much eliminated smoking among professionals and college graduates and people with higher income. This is a socioeconomic disease where people who already have many disadvantages are being exploited by big tobacco with advertising aimed directly at them. Wow. All
0: right. Well, I had seen that... uh Nationally, 15% of the population smokes, but here in County, it's higher. In Onondaga
2: County, it's 20%. And in our neighbors, Cayuga County had the highest in New York State with 30%, and Oswego County with 28%. So compared to New York City, where the smoking rates are very low because of the strict clean air regulations that Mm. have been put in place within the metropolitan area, Upstate New York is still a hotbed of smoking. So that's really made a difference in New York City, though, to lower the rates. Right, right. So when you balance, New York State is one of the lowest states because of the huge population that's subject to the restrictions in New York City.
0: Wow. Okay. Good to know. all right, so the New York State Health Department um, has had some encouraging news, too, that the percentage of students who's ever, who've ever tried a cigarette has dropped significantly. Uh, they're reporting that only a quarter of high school students and 6% of middle schoolers say they've ever tried a cigarette. Now, is that in, important? It's very
2: important, and in fact,
0: now only 7% of high
2: schoolers use cigarettes. However, 10% are using e-cigarettes, and this is our next Mm. challenge with the youth. The e-cigarettes, the hookah pipes with tobacco, and it's a big challenge because as they get older... It appears that they switch from e cigarettes to regular cigarettes because they've become addicted to the nicotine by the e cigarettes.
0: All right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. And Dr. Leslie Coleman is with us talking about trends in cigarette usage and rates of lung cancer and other cancers related to smoking. Now, um, what do you say to people who believe that vaping is not as dangerous as smoking cigarettes? We don't have any
2: evidence about the safety of vaping. There are several concerns. One is we don't know what's in the liquid that is in these devices. Much of it is made in China. We don't have ingredient lists. We know that there are known toxins that have been discovered in some of the brands and flavors. We also know that if small children get a hold of these brightly colored devices, They can be badly poisoned, and this has happened in uh, an increasing number of cases. We've actually had people from the Poison Center come and explain. Right. Plus, this is advertised towards children. The colors of the liquid, the flavors—watermelon, bubble gum, cotton candy—are clearly aimed at the youth population, and. Once you're addicted to nicotine, it doesn't matter how that got started. And we see that once uh, young people are over 25, the e-cigarette rate is much lower and the regular cigarette smoking rate is much higher. So okay. this is not a satisfying long-term way, apparently, of satisfying the
0: nicotine addiction. Okay. Well, that said, there's still many people who've been smoking for decades. Is it too late for them to make a difference in their health? Absolutely not. It's never too late to quit.
2: And although your lung cancer risk goes down more slowly, within a few days, the carbon monoxide in your Blood has gone down within one year, your risk of heart disease has gone down to that of a non smoker.
0: Will you actually feel a difference within a few days? A lot of people do, and
2: they describe it as suddenly being able to take a deep breath or they just feel better. But it's not easy that there's a withdrawal phase which is not easy for everybody and it's quite a challenge if nicotine was not so addictive we wouldn't have this right it wouldn't smoking be a problem
0: problem right i see um now upstate's involved in helping people quit smoking um can right. you tell us about this quit smoking cafe yes.
2: once once a month in the cancer center we have a quit smoking cafe which is open to anyone friends anyone guests can come and speak to our certified smoking cessation counselor who will educate the group about resources available, about the causes of addiction, and then make an individual plan for quitting with everybody who is interested in doing so. She's had quite good success. We also combine that with urging people to call the New York State Quit Line Mm. to get the advice from their counselors as well.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, And people can learn more about that by calling Upstate Connect at 315-464-8668. I also wanted to ask you about another program Upstate has, uh, the Lung Cancer Screening Program. I've um, talked to some patients who've gone through this. They've actually found early lung cancers and then gone on and been successfully treated and are alive today, living healthy lives. Is this something that anyone who's worried they might be at risk for lung cancer could be a part of? We are really thrilled to
2: now have a tool to screen people for lung cancer, which can be discovered in the early stage through a special CT scan of the lungs. This is similar to mammography for breast cancer. Anyone is eligible who has smoked the equivalent of a pack a day for 30 years, who's age 55 to 78, and if they've quit, they need to have quit less than 15 years ago. Okay. We can do the scan. They're enrolled in a program where they will come back every year if anything worrisome is detected. It's usually small and Patients will be referred to our multidisciplinary thoracic oncology program in the cancer center for evaluation and treatment if needed. Okay, now that's
0: for smokers. Is um, someone who's been exposed to like secondhand smoke, are they at as high a risk? They're not at nearly as high a risk, although
2: 3,000 people in New York State die every year of smoking-related illness, not just lung cancer. However, because it's much, much less risky than primary smoking, we don't yet apply a a screening test that is so um, involved as a CT scan. If there was a very simple fingertip pinprick test, for instance, we probably would have it open to many more patients. But we need to show that it actually saves lives. We've done that in the population I described of current or former heavier smokers.
0: Okay. And you mentioned smoking smoking related illnesses. So tell me some of what are those? Well,
2: the primary one and the biggest killer of all in the United States and actually the world is heart vascular disease, which includes heart attacks, strokes, peripheral vascular disease, such as poor circulation to the legs, and all related diseases that relate to the heart or the blood vessels. But cancer is catching up. The rates of heart disease have gone down dramatically because of the lowered smoking rates. But cancer, because there are many other cancers as well as smoking-related cancers, is going to be the leading killer Above heart and heart vascular disease? disease in the United States and in the world in the next few years.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, what more? Um, what more needs to be done? Do you have other ideas about? Um, well, the clean air laws in New York City are working. Right. We need
2: to dramatically increase the price of cigarettes, which is already very high in New York State ten dollars a pack. But more taxes works. That's a demonstrated. Uh, effective technique. Public education and mass media works. And we need to raise the legal age at which you can purchase tobacco. In Onondaga County now it's 19. We are working very hard with the county legislature to, on T21 legislation, uh. which is to raise the age of purchasing tobacco to 21. This has been passed in Cortland County and several other counties in New York State, and we are working on it both at a local and a state level. We Is there need, a, is there a lot of resistance to that? There's not much resistance to that. Some people want to exclude military, military. um We don't think that's right. The Department of Defense does not support smoking or tobacco use among uh, active military. So we think that there should not be such an exclusion. Okay. We also want to make sure that money that comes from the tobacco settlement is used used for for. what it's supposed to be used for, public education and cessation.
0: Good. Well, thank you. Thanks. I appreciate you talking with me about cigarettes, which clearly remain an important public health issue. My guest has been Dr. Leslie Komen from the Upstate Cancer Center, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
5: Hi. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Go ahead, make my day, or our elevator speech. Well, folks, you know the idea in business of an elevator speech? A clear, hopefully memorable elevator trip length description of your business for prospective customers? Well, the other day, I'm getting on the elevator to my office. Minding my own business, wheeling my trusty two-wheeler in, lights flashing in my helmet, goggles, see-me-don't-run-me-over-in-your-car yellow jacket, <laughs> those funky padded bike shorts, gloves, and my sneaks. A woman gets on, too. I ask, what floor are you going to? And I push our respective buttons and commence checking out that very interesting elevator door closing. Ker-clunk. Doesn't my fellow passenger say, Are you Dr. O'Neill on that local TV show? Yeah, that's me. She goes on. Nice show. The piece I really liked was when you walked around downtown, Armory Square, and said hello to people walking by, and some of them just lit up and said hello back. I felt myself lighting up, and I thought... Of course that's what she's doing right now saying hello and adding something to it appreciation. And she lit up, smiling too and went on. Thanks for doing the show. I love what you're doing there and on Upstate's Health Link on Air Radio show too, and she's beaming at me and me at her. You're welcome. So glad you like them. I felt terrific knowing what I do makes a positive difference for someone. Whoosh, the door opens. Bye, bye, ker-clunk. Looking at that closing door, I realized that was a different kind of elevator speech. For the business of my life and hers and all of ours. Thanking other people for how they make our lives better. If you will, that elevates us all. (laughs) I know, she really made my day. I'm Dr. Rich, Elevator Man O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Coming up next, a public health look at gun violence. You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. The Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Gun violence remains an important issue in America, with public health leaders calling for consensus-building efforts to promote gun safety. Here to go over the statistics and help explain how gun violence is a public health concern is Dr. Margaret Formica, an assistant professor in public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Formica.
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to
0: come and talk about this important public health issue. Well, you're a co-author of an editorial in the American Journal of Public Health that is getting quite a bit of news coverage. It says that national firearm deaths, which includes homicides, suicides, and unintentional shootings, have climbed. Um, And I guess now we're at a plateau that began in 2000. So a couple of questions. Um, There's an accompanying chart that shows gun violence kills about as many people as sepsis, which is a serious blood infection. Um, How soon until gun violence surpasses motor vehicles? Uh, in mortality rates? Uh,
3: so there have been actually quite a bit of variation in trends in gun violence over time. Uh, but in contrast, the rates of motor vehicle fatalities have steadily declined, in large part due to the public health efforts,
0: like so, hub, the seat belts and things like yeah, that. Yes,
3: seat belts um, and regulations, different standards and uh, licensing, things like that. So we've seen a fifty-nine percent decline in motor vehicle fatalities from 1969 to 2012. And if these same trends continue, we'll likely see gun-related deaths surpass motor vehicle deaths nationally within the next few years. And in fact, 21 states already have
0: higher death rates due to firearms really? than motor vehicles. Wow. Wow. Now, nationally, there's this plateau, though. Is that a good thing? Does that mean that it's not increasing? Or does it that allude to something else?
3: Uh, well, it's, it's certainly comforting that we're not seeing an increase in gun deaths. Uh, the fact that we've seen a plateau, though, since 2000 means that we're not doing a very good job of preventing uh, gun deaths and mm-hmm. looking at it from a prevention standpoint. In the United States, there's over 32,000 deaths uh, due to firearms every year, as well as over 67,000 injuries due to firearms every year. And these statistics are by far the highest among industrialized nations. Um, And what's so keenly important is that firearm-related injuries and deaths are preventable. So we should be seeing the same improvements that we've seen within other areas of injury prevention, but we're not. But we're not, huh. Huh.
0: Now, I know you've uh, also looked at uh, the statistics from Syracuse, mm-hmm. right, with yes. the firearm violence. What, is, what does that show?
3: Yeah, so colleagues and I were very interested in obtaining a better picture of the firearm epidemic locally, uh, so we did obtain data from the Syracuse City Police Department on all incidents of shots fired, shots fired with injuries, and homicide by gun from January of 2010 to March of 2016, and during that time period, there were almost uh, 2,000 incidents, which resulted in over 500 shooting victims during that time. And when we calculated some of the numbers, the annual rate of homicide by firearm for the city of Syracuse was 6.1 per 100,000 people, which is one and a half times the national rate. So it's not just a public health problem nationally, it's a public health problem locally as well, and possibly even more so. Are you looking into reasons for that? We hope to. Uh, We're actually seeking
0: funding to to potentially look at uh, some of the causes of that. Well, help us understand how um, gun violence is being framed as a public health issue.
3: Um, yeah, so there's actually a growing body of research that indicates that gun violence spreads like an infectious disease or it's contagious. Huh. Um, so, for example, we do know that gun violence actually clusters in time. We know that gun violence clusters in geographic areas, and we know that gun violence spreads among social networks, just like a lot of infectious diseases do. Like the do. flu. Yes, exactly, huh. just like the flu. Um, so, But the reason this is really a public health issue in the United States is because firearm injuries and deaths significantly contribute to premature deaths, illness, and disability. Um, But again, these are preventable.
0: Hmm, Okay. Well, I know uh, survey results on American gun ownership have been published recently. Uh, It comes from public health schools at Harvard and Northeastern. And it was somewhat surprising, at least to me, that the number of guns in the U.S. is 265 million or more than one gun for every American adult. And that 133 million of these weapons are concentrated among three percent of the population. Uh, the researchers called that three percent "super owners" who have amassed a, an average of 17 guns each. Did these findings surprise you? Yeah.
3: Um, you know, actually, the number of guns overall didn't surprise me. There's been a lot of estimates that have indicated that there may be up to 300 million guns in circulation. So that's actually a little bit lower than some of the other estimates. Um, And Americans have such strong views about gun ownership in this country, so that's not surprising Mm -hmm. either. Uh, But what did surprise me is the number of guns owned by those super owners. 17 is a huge number um, to have in your home, a number of guns in your home. So that said, we don't know if having a greater number of guns in the home actually increases injury or death um, compared to having fewer guns.
0: Good point. That hasn't been studied. No, it hasn't. (laughs) So uh, so there was a big meeting in Boston with <coughs> representatives from 42 public health schools and several public health groups and gun violence prevention advocacy organizations. And you were there. So uh, if you can tell me what that was like and what was the outcome of the meeting. Sure. Uh, so
3: Sandro Galea, the dean of Boston University School of Public Health, organized the meeting and he brought together representatives from schools and programs of public health, like you mentioned, across the country, as well as public health and gun violence prevention advocacy organizations Mm -hmm. Um, and I had the opportunity to attend the meeting as the representative of the Central New York Master of Public Health Program that's here at Upstate. Uh, And so the first part of the day we heard several presentations from leading gun experts and advocates in the field and then we began the work at hand which was to develop and agree on several areas of priority. And so we came up with five uh, really key tactical approaches that we identified as an agenda for action among academic public health to curb the firearm epidemic.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I want to get into what those okay. uh, tactical sure. approaches are, but uh, first, we're talking with Dr. Margaret Fromica about uh, public health research on gun violence on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. So this meeting and these tactical approaches, is this a response to the new president and his support for gun rights? Um, is there a fear that gun violence is escalating or that there will be no federal support for laws curtailing guns? Or is this sort of a response to that? Or uh,
3: Well, actually, the meeting was in the planning phase for several months prior to the election. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I think most of the people in attendance at the meeting really thought, as probably most of the country thought, that the outcome of the presidential election would be different. Um, but with the election of Trump, it did certainly impact the tone of the meeting as well as the conversation that resulted in that agenda for action. Um, Trump did campaign on a pro gun platform and he did have the support of the gun lobby. So there is some concern that there will not be a lot of federal support coming in the, in the next few years.
0: Okay, so one, the, the first of those five tactical approaches was to strengthen research. Mm-hmm. So why do we need academic research on firearm-related morbidity and mortality? Why is that important?
3: Uh, Well, there's an incredible scarcity of funding and therefore research and publications on firearms. Um, And this is in large part due to legislation that was enacted by Congress in 1996 that stated that none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the CDC could be used to advocate or promote gun control. Um, And this was the result of strong lobbying by the National Rifle Association that was in response to a study in 1993 and then a a later study in 1994 um, that found that guns in the home were strong risk factors for both homicide and uh, suicide. Uh, So then the legislation was eventually expanded to include the National Institutes of Health or the NIH, which also provides a lot of our federal funding. Um, So the great strides that we really made with motor vehicle injury prevention uh, was supported by research that helped us define the problem. So who was it affecting? Uh, Where was it occurring? What were the circumstances surrounding those injuries? Um, And they were also, the the research supported identification of what were the risk factors for motor vehicle injuries um, and how can we implement prevention strategies and are they effective? Uh, A lot of these same questions we haven't been able to answer with gun violence because we haven't had the funding and the research to do so.
0: Just like in Syracuse, why is our rate higher? Exactly. You'd like to, okay, all right. Exactly. And then uh, the second uh, approach was to build public health networks. Um, So the Coalition of Public Health Schools would like to convene a group of firearm owners, firearm manufacturers, police, pro-firearm advocates, safety advocates, everyone, all the invested parties Um, to find common ground. Do you think that that will be possible, um, given that guns are seen as such a foundational right in this country? Do you think there will be a common ground?
3: I do. I uh, I actually think that um, making progress in the reduction of firearm-related injuries and deaths uh, is achievable if we... Uh, engage all of the stakeholders in the conversation and listen to all of their concerns to develop a comprehensive approach to the problem. And this actually has been done successfully in Massachusetts, uh, which has some of the most effective gun laws in the country, some of the lowest gun violence rates in the country, in part because of legislation that was enacted in the last few years that was passed because uh, all the stakeholders were at the table.
0: Okay. And so maybe... um I don't know. Focusing on gun safety might be an example of a way to sort of get everyone together on the same page about something.
3: Exactly, shifting the conversation from one of gun ownership and gun control and concerns about bans of certain types of guns, and shifting that framework to one of
0: gun safety would definitely um, lead us in the right direction. So, would do you think that um, you know more gun safety would do much? toward reducing gun violence or firearm morbidity and mortality,
3: necessarily? Absolutely, I mean, we've seen it with other areas of injury prevention, like the motor vehicles, injuries and deaths that we discussed, Uh, so there's no reason to believe that it would be less effective with gun violence. We just need the opportunity to to conduct
0: that research and and move uh, forward with the public health initiatives. Okay. Now with motor vehicle deaths, the overall decline in deaths is attributed to like seatbelts, vehicle safety designs, speed limits, roadway design, things like that. Is there some equivalent feature for firearms that could make a difference? Yeah. Uh, so there's
3: actually smart gun technology um, that can prevent anyone other than the authorized owner of the gun from firing it. So for example, wow. if a child picks up the gun, uh, it can't be fired. If the gun's stolen, it can't be fired. Um, but there are even simpler methods as well. Um, so things like the fact that we require all cars to be registered in this country. We don't have similar requirements for uh, guns in this country. Uh, all states, for example, require drivers to be licensed, but not all states require gun owners to be licensed. Exactly. And, um, and finally, firearms actually remain the last consumer product manufactured in the United States that's not subject to federal health and safety regulations. Huh. okay. Yeah, so we could actually simply require the gun manufacturers
0: to meet minimum safety standards, just like we do for all other products that we use in the U.S. Okay, all right. Well, now the uh, fourth tactical approach was to nurture state-level initiatives. So what sorts of state-level initiatives are public health schools concerned with, and what would they like to see that would make an impact? Mm -hmm. So focusing efforts on
3: gun safety legislation at the state level, like some that I just mentioned, uh, can be effective and may actually set precedent for um, federal action when the political climate is different. Uh, and federal action in the coming years is unlikely, uh, but three of the four initiatives promoting gun safety that were on state ballots in the November election actually passed. So there is promise to achieve these at the state level.
0: Okay, all right. And then the fifth approach um, regards uh, the private sector a little bit. Um, there's mention that gun violence can depress business growth and harm neighborhood economies. The editorial in the journal says that the healthcare industry needs to get the ball rolling by examining what can be effective in reducing gun-related injuries and deaths. Are you aware of any efforts underway at Upstate to address this? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, there there actually are efforts at Upstate. Um, So firearm injuries and deaths create an enormous economic burden with an estimated $229 billion in total societal costs annually. Um, but to meet that economic challenge, we need to not only engage the public health sector, but we need to engage private industry. And as you mentioned, that would include and hopefully start with the, the healthcare industry in the development and implementation of evidence-based initiatives. So one possibility is to incentivize the healthcare industry to develop and implement hospital-based violence prevention programs. And we do have one such program here at Upstate. It's the Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program, also known as VPOP. Okay.
0: All right. Well, we'll have to look into that a little bit more um, in the future. I think we're going to have some of those people come and do a segment as well. Great, wonderful. But I want to thank you for coming in and talking with me about this. My guest has been Dr. Margaret Formica from Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, talking about research on gun violence. And you've been listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. Yay.
4: Poet Anne Sutera botash is a professor of pediatrics at the Golisano Children's Hospital in Syracuse, New York. She is also an outspoken advocate for children and a nationally recognized expert witness in cases involving child abuse. Her poem, Taking the Stand, illustrates how a grand jury receives evidence of such abuse, not wanting to believe such behavior is possible from the child's own family. Taking the Stand, reasonable cause to believe, these words admonish and command 12 peers and more, proclaimed in marker on hanging whiteboard behind the witness stand. Grand jury job defined, a hearing to determine trial, a process of the law, requires voice behind a wooden rail as evidence is laid bare. The sworn expert... Nothing but truth to those unblinking eyes and straight backs. Her steady hand on worn Bible, stethoscope jammed in a pocket. Khaki pants, jeans, pink sweater, plaid shirt, heels and tailored suit. The jurors breathe in rows and tap uneasy fingers on their knees. She turns and pens the lesson, marking around the phrase, Behold a baby bone. A squeak of fracture, underlined, evokes wet eyes in one or two. An arrow here, an arrow there, she teaches. This broken piece meant legs were flailing, and this blood right here? She thinks, so sorry, baby passed away. You jurors, please stay with me. She scribbles the untellable. She knows the lies we choose, not the tooth fairy, Santa Claus, childhood, We accept not mother, not father. Biology says so, species survival and all. We believe love conquers anger and crazy. Minds cling to fairy tales of invisible villains who crept to the crib. The expert thumps the marker. A fist has wrapped the ribs and squeezed and crushed. The pink sweater cringes and fidgets. Khaki pants man chews his lip heels and suit dabs at eyes. The expert says the crying stopped. Cause enough, believe.
0: In Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll talk about the health status of Native American children, and we'll learn about the diagnosis of and treatment options for Meniere's disease. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening, and happy New Year.